This past Tuesday, our youngest reported for duty as a first grade teacher up in the Northland. And if you know the drill, they report this week because next week the kids come. And because this is her fourth go-around, she's pretty much got it, you know, in hand, which includes, if you're a first grade teacher, going with your roster to the kindergarten teachers and saying, okay, give me a heads up. What, What do you think? Good group? Bad group? What do I have? You know, there's always one, at least one, who colors outside the lines, so to speak. And if they color outside the lines in the first grade, it's it's only a matter of time before they're listening to rock and roll and doing drugs. I mean, we all know it's a slippery slope, right? And first grade teachers are not interested in artists who color outside the lines. They want conformists. They can become artists later. From every estimation, the writer of the Gospel of John was one of those kids who colored outside the lines. He was a troublemaker. What I mean is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already established, kind of like older siblings, you know, this is how you write a gospel. They're not identical by any stretch, but they follow a very similar pattern. And John, who most likely was familiar with their three, will have none of it. He colors outside the lines a lot. Like, did you know that in the gospel of John, there are no parables? Jesus never tells a parable in the Gospel of John. How can you have a Gospel without a parable? I mean, isn't that a staple of Jesus? Or His chronology. It's almost upside down or it's just very convoluted compared to the chronology that they had already established. Or or how about this? That in the other Gospels, the twelve are called apostles. You don't have apostles in the Gospel of John because he's got this kind of egalitarian view and he doesn't really want anybody to rise to that level. He just keeps calling them disciples. But, if that weren't enough, here's the clincher. When he gets around to telling the story of the Last Supper, he has no Last Supper. What? How can you have a Last Supper and not talk about the Supper? John gives no indication. I mean, he he indicates they're they're at a meal, but he says nothing about it. You know that life-size thing we have over there? Well, what's the point? John would say, he doesn't tell that story. Instead, what John does is give hints of this meal throughout the Gospel. Almost every page or so, little allusions to the meal. Almost as, as if to say there's an everydayness to it. Like, remember the first thing Jesus does in the Gospel of John? He goes to a wedding. And they run out of wine, and there are these huge ceremonial jars, 120 gallons of water that he transforms into wine. Not just any wine, mind you. Well, some people wish it had been grape juice, but this was the best vintage wine they had tasted. It's a a kind of hint toward this meal. Or how about a couple of chapters later, when he looks out, Jesus looks out and he sees thousands of hungry and hopeless people. And when he feeds them, the Gospel writer goes out of his way to use this language for feeding the thousands in the wilderness. He says he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it. We're supposed to see a a kind of allusion to this meal. In the same chapter, he says, if you eat this bread and drink this cup, you'll never be hungry or thirsty again. 
over and over, little allusions. But for some reason, when he gets through penning that chapter 20, he picks it back up and he tells one more meal story, the one we read. You have to put it in context. In that upper room, even though he doesn't describe the meal, like in the other Gospels, Jesus looks at the twelve and he says, tonight, all of you will fall away because of me. Well, Peter sort of sidles over next to Jesus and says, I I can see how you'd say that about these eleven, you know, these others. I, I can see that, Lord, but not me. I'm with you. I got your back. We're good. And Jesus says, before the night's over, Peter, three times you'll deny me. So Jesus gets arrested, and sure enough, they all fall away. Peter does manage to follow at a distance. And there in the courtyard of the high priest, he warms himself by a charcoal fire, and that's when they start to ask, well, weren't you? And three times he denies the Lord. That's the last time Jesus and Peter have an encounter until this moment in John's Gospel. John's Gospel doesn't need this story to finish the Jesus narrative as much as the Peter narrative. The one who had denied him three times over a charcoal fire and had been told that would happen over a meal now is invited to a meal cooked on a charcoal fire, and asked three times, do you love me? But here's the thing. This is not, this is not your high school principal saying, okay, young lady, did you or did you not skip class yesterday afternoon? That's not the tone of voice here when Jesus asked three times because in each case, in each case, Jesus says, feed my sheep. He restores him and forgives him. This is a meal of compassion for one who has denied the Lord. But here's the problem. It's a Bible story. (laughs) I mean, it's ancient. It's like, oh, okay, that's good. Peter denied the Lord, yeah. What's next? It's so hard for us to imagine what does it look like to deny the Lord now? You know what I mean? I think about a colleague I had more than 20 years ago now, a gentleman, wonderfully gifted, artistic, loved the Lord, loved this meal. His specialty was adolescent development and how people come to faith. But it turns out he was a pedophile. And he destroyed many lives. And he invited each of us to go to breakfast individually where he would confess. I remember him sharing with me a pen and ink drawing of bread and chalice. Is there room at the table for someone like that? Or I think about a friend of mine, a minister friend, who said, you know, when I pull up to a corner and there's a homeless person there, I just fidget with the radio. If we close our eyes to homelessness, just pretend it's not there, are we still welcome at the table? Does Jesus feed someone like that? Theologians note that it is so much easier 
to grant ourselves a kind of waiver, you know, a grace, a forgiveness, because, well, we know how complex we are. We know that we're not consistent. We recognize it. We are painfully aware of it. But in others, well, I can see how you would say that, Lord. Maybe, maybe the hardest thing to grasp in the Christian faith is not the Trinity. How is God three and one? I mean, that's a tough one. But maybe the hardest thing to grasp is that our sins, our failures, are really forgiven. That in that place inside of us that cringes because we remember that time, I can't believe I... That into that deepest place, the Gospel seeps in and says... You are forgiven. It is hard to fathom, isn't it? I mean, it's hard. I know it's true, for the Bible tells me so, but I I also have a parable. John doesn't have parables. I have a parable for you. Several years ago, we had a student graduate from the seminary named Joe. He and his wife were called to a church, their first church, in Newark, Ohio, which happens to be the home of Longer Burger Baskets, if that means anything to some of you. And so he said, I want you and David May, who teaches New Testament, I want you to come and be a part of my installation. Well, we were honored, and we made a weekend of it. Friday night, David and I led a Bible study. Saturday morning, there was a little golf outing for those who wanted to do that. Saturday night was the installation. And Sunday morning, as the newly installed pastor, Joe, would preach. Everything was planned. Well, on Saturday afternoon, David and I stopped by Joe's house just to see how things were going. And they informed us that, along with their extended family in town, we were all going out to eat this evening, which we thought, well, that's great. We can't wait. And they said, no, 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 before the service. We couldn't imagine how this was possible. I mean, it was late afternoon. There were 19 of us in all. How are we going to get in and out and get there on time? You cannot be late to your own installation. They, they teach you that in seminary. Don't be late to your own installation. Well, David and I looked at our watch and said, tell us the name of the restaurant. We'll go ahead and put our name on the list. They thought that was a great idea. We thought it was. And so they told us it was Miller's, Amish-owned, family, home-cooking kind of place. Is your mouth watering yet? It was fantastic. We pulled up. Parking lot is full. And it's the kind of place. I know you've been in one of these where there's a bakery in the front. And so instantly you're just overwhelmed with the smell of bread. You could buy bread. You could buy jams. You could buy a longer burger basket if you wanted to take out a second mortgage. I mean, it was amazing. And you couldn't move. The place was packed. So I wiggled my way through the crowd of people waiting. And there was a pulpit with an Amish girl in the cotton dress standing there. And next to her, the Amish man with the the beard and the kind face and the hat. And next to them, a hand-carved wooden sign that said, Please do not report in until all of your party is present. (laughs) Which I think generally is a pretty good rule. So I said, yes, Graves Party of 19. And the Amish man said, and is everyone in your party here? And I said, yeah. (laughs) Kind of like that. That's the way I said it. And they wrote my name down and I wiggled my way back to David and he said, you lied to the Amish. (laughs) 
I mean, they're Amish. How can you lie to the Amish? Is there a nicer people in the planet? You lie to the Amish. I go, it's, it's harmless. And I, I, I think it was. I mean, think about it. People were waiting for their table for 30 minutes for parties of two. We had 19 people. Two minutes later, the guy says, Graves party of 19. Oh my gosh. David's first words, of course, were, I told you not to lie to the Amish. Which is no good, right? So I said, go out in the parking lot, see if they're here, I'll stall. He went out, they're not here. He called, and Joe said, yeah, we're having a little trouble. No, 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 they're not having trouble. We're having trouble. I had to go back up to the pulpit. I took David with me. Very reluctantly, he went. And I said, you know, there she was behind the pulpit. There he was. I said, yeah, uh, funny thing. um, Turns out, um, we're not all here yet. And he said, did you lie? And it got really quiet. I mean, we were in church. And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. He said, you two come with me. And I thought, oh my God, what do the Amish do to liars? I was kind of picturing caning or stocks, you know, something like that. I don't know what Amish do to liars. He took us out into the middle of the restaurant and I thought, he's going to make an example. He's going to say, I need your attention or something. But no, he kept walking. And then I realized he was kicking us out of the back of the restaurant. And he opened the door and there was this huge banquet room and a long table. And every few feet, a little basket with bread. And the Amish man with that great beard and hat smiled at me and said, Have some bread. You are forgiven. <laughs>